0: Now you talk about terror. What about for me? I've
1: been terrorized all my day. I'm a, all my day.
0: Economy is being held hostage by a small cohort of financiers who run private equity firms: Apollo, Blackstone, the Carlyle Group, Kohlberg Kravis Roberts. These equity firms buy up and plunder businesses, piling on debt, refusing to reinvest, slashing staff, and often driving companies into bankruptcy. The object is not to sustain businesses, but to harvest them for assets to make a short-term profit. Those who run these firms, such as Leon, Black, Henry Kravis, Stephen Schwartzman, and David Rubenstein have amassed personal fortunes in the billions of dollars. The wreckage they orchestrate is taken out on workers who lose jobs or see salaries and benefits slashed, taken out on pension funds that are depleted because of usurious fees or abolished, and on our health and safety. Residents of nursing homes, for example, owned by private equity firms Experience 10% more deaths because of staffing shortages and reduced compliance with standards of care. Private equity owns hospitals and has created a health crisis. Nursing shortages have contributed to one of every four unexpected hospital deaths or injuries caused by errors. The private equity firms do not serve patients but profits. They have closed hospitals, especially in rural America. They cut back on stockpiles of vital medical devices, including ventilators and personal protective equipment. In 1975, the US had about 1.5 million hospital beds and a population of about 216 million people. Now, with a population of over 330 million people, we have around 925,000 beds. 56% of Americans have medical debt, even though many have insurance, and 23% owe $10,000 or more. Emergency room visits and emergency rooms are often run by private equity firms, contributed to medical debt for 44% of Americans. At the same time, the healthcare system, because of this slash-and-burn assault, was unprepared to handle the COVID epidemic, seeing 330,000 Americans die during the pandemic because they could not afford to go to a doctor on time. These private equity firms, like an invasive species, are ubiquitous. They have acquired educational institutions, utility companies, and retail chains, while bleeding taxpayers of hundreds of billions in subsidies, made possible by bought-and-paid-for prosecutors, politicians, and regulators. Joining me to discuss private equity firms and their assault on the economy is the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Gretchen Morganson, who along with Joshua Rosner wrote, These are the plunderers, how private equity runs and wrecks America. Let's begin with what they are. They've just rebranded themselves, uh, but I'll let you start. Well, Chris, these are the
1: old um, takeover titans that we started to learn about in the 80s. R.J. Nabisco was the big deal that focused everyone's attention on them. And they just rebranded themselves, as you said, into something called private equity. A little bit more genteel sounds like it actually might be fair, equity being that word. Um, So these are just those corporate raiders that really were sort of fearsome. And, uh, you know, Congress at that time was concerned about what they were going to do to the economy. Congress lost interest and went on to the next thing. And, of course, they did then go on to, over the next few decades, really um, pillage the economy and workers and pensions, as you pointed out.
0: Explain how they work, because it's all about debt. Um, and, right. and what's interesting from your book is that they actually don't put very much money But I'll let you explain just the mechanics of it.
1: Okay. These firms, first of all, they raise money for their buyouts. They don't use a lot of their own money for those buyouts. What they do is they go to public pensions. They go to endowments. They go to the big institutional investors and say – we're putting together a fund, we're going to buy out companies, we're going to make them more efficient, and then we're going to sell them in five to seven years at a profit, and you will be able to reap those gains along with us. But yes, as you point out, the private equity titans do not put a lot of their money, of their own money at stake here. Um, One to two percent of these funds are typically the private equity firm's money. So after they have raised the money, they go out and look for companies to buy. And they um, really home in on companies that have assets that they can strip, These are
0: often physical assets that they can sell.
1: Physical assets like real estate. Now, you pointed out that they've taken over a lot of retailers. When that was going on, often they would be buying retailers that had, you know, either very, very favorable leases or actually had land underneath their stores that they could then sell at a profit, stripping the company. It's really not about operating the company, as you say. It's really about stripping the assets, uh, extracting the money that they can from it. It's an extraction business. So they buy a company. They then find out how they can make it more efficient, um, which means usually firing many people, um, stripping the assets, selling them off. And sometimes they sell the assets and they get all their money back initially very very early on in the process and what's left really is a carcass what's left is a company that has now got enormous amounts of debt piled on top of it these these transactions are funded by debt but it's not the private equity firm that takes on the debt it's the company they're buying so if they buy a retailer they'll put a load of debt on that retailer. Suddenly, that retailer has way higher costs of operating, which means that then they have to cut costs elsewhere, fire people, deplete pensions. It's really a game where a very narrow slice of people win and a huge circle of pain of losers is involved, everybody else is on the losing end.
0: Well, when, because the, it's about short-term profit, um, you have an example in the book about uh, a nursing home system. And this was an amazing story. And so what they do is they, they sold the physical buildings that had the nursing homes. Uh, and then suddenly these nursing homes had to rent, I think it was $40,000 or something more a month. I'll let you explain. So they actually carry out policies, not just loading it up with debt but also carrying out policies that physically dynamite or destroy corporations or businesses that before they arrive, you have uh, the story of Samsonite, we'll talk about the steel mill you write about, but that were healthy. Absolutely. So the nursing home company
1: that you were talking about, Manor Care, it was very um, well run. It, the reason that the acquisition was made, and this was Carlisle Group, which is one of the top private equity firms. And let me just
0: interrupt, because as you point out in the book, they, like James Baker, they pull in heavyweight political figures once they're out of office to run these groups.
1: Carlisle, unlike the other firms which are located in New York and are the Wall Street type of folks, um, Carlisle is a much more – it's based in Washington and it's much more politically astute. And as you say, they hire – there's a revolving door with government officials, very high-powered government officials. Anyway, they bought ManorCare. It was a very well-established, well-run national nursing home home company. They immediately sold the land under the nursing homes and made the nursing homes pay rent. They took out the equivalent of what they had put into the company. They received that when they sold the land. So they were free and clear. Everything after that became gravy for them. So they really weren't concerned about you know, the profits, they were already in the money, as they say. But the company, the the nursing homes suddenly had to pay exorbitant rents. And that meant that something else had to give. And ultimately, what ended up happening was an enormous Medicare fraud that was designed to really um, overcharge Medicare for services to these residents. And the stories are absolutely gut-wrenching. There were some whistleblowers who came forward talking about what they were seeing. And the DOJ took the case but then blew the case— um, but some of the tales that these whistleblowers told about forcing people, forcing aged, frail, ill residents to go through, um, you know, in- incredible uh, um, rehabilitation that they didn't need in order to bill Medicare for these um, Process it, it was just shocking. Well,
0: you see that with you write about the ER that the what do they call surprise bills? I can't right. remember the term yes. you use. Right. Uh, they will hospitalize people who don't need. It. It's all about money, and then of course, the care is substandard because the staffing is cut.
1: That's right. that's right. So ultimately, Manor care was driven into bankruptcy by the people that bought it. But they didn't lose because they had done this transaction to buy the land underneath all of the nursing homes.
0: You call these private equity firms, these are your words, money-spinning machines. Before we go into specifics, talk about, because the, the amounts are staggering. I mean, we can talk about the charming, is it Leon Black? Um, the, 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 these people are bringing in personally, you know, the, these figures, billions upon billions of dollars. Talk about the amount of money they're, they're generating.
1: The net worths of the people running these companies are in the tens of billions. Um, in the COVID years, I think Steve Schwarzman's, um, he is the head of Blackstone, I think his net worth doubled during COVID. Um, I think it went up to something like 35 billion or something. Anyway, uh, these companies extract enormous fees. For their operation. They extract fees from the pension funds that invest with them. But well, I just want to the interrupt endowments. you because the,
0: the deal is they get the pension funds to invest because supposedly the pension funds will make a profit. Right. But then, as you read in the book, they force the pension funds to pay them management fees. Right. And you have cases in the book where they're not even doing anything. Right. But I think, if I remember, they're pulling like 10%. I mean, a lot of money. And, and these pension funds in the end don't actually make a profit.
1: Um, many times they don't. Sometimes they do. Um, so the rule of thumb is called two and 20. So they'll get 2% of the assets under management as a management fee every year and then 20% of the gains that they make. And so this has translated really into a billionaire-making machine. For these guys that run these firms, and yes, it's really staggering when you pull back the curtain on some of their practices. One of them that's really, really outrageous is if they, when they buy a company, they will often install people on the board of the company to, you know, watch over it to make sure that they're going in the right direction for them anyway, not for the company necessarily, and they will um, charge them. Uh, fees over a period of time for that their management expertise okay these fees are generally contracted on a 10year life but many of these deals they end up selling between five and seven years. That's the goal as you pointed out the short-term nature of this and so but the company has to pay for the full 10 years of the fees that the uh, private equity firm is charging them. And that's money for doing nothing. That's just one of the tricks of the trade that they do, to generate billions of dollars for themselves while they're really, really impoverishing so many other people.
0: You write that they operate in secrecy uh, with hidden ties to companies they control. Um, The wreckage they leave behind is often difficult to track back. To its origins, and I just want to raise another uh, point that you do in the book. You, you, and I thought it was you know important that many Americans who are being assaulted this way, they know something's wrong, but they don't quite know what is wrong. And I think it's tied to this almost invisible hand. Uh, but explain that. And then, uh, then I want you to talk about their political clout because it's significant. They, they get the, the tax breaks. They, you know, they, they corrupt the system enough to essentially grease the skids for them to continue to operate.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so the secrecy is important. You know, One of the reasons that we wanted to write this book is to let people know how pervasive this business model is. Well, you
0: write at one point that all of us although we don't know it, are engaging with private equity yes. firms. So, so talk about how extensive it is and then talk about that secrecy too. I
1: mean it's, it's – I, I, I write in the book, um, you know, the coffee and donut that you pick up on the way to work, the uh, childcare entity where you drop your son or daughter off, the nursing home where your mother or father lives. I mean it is cradle to grave. Literally, you're impacted by private equity. But you don't know it because these are just companies that they're buying and selling, but you don't know who the real owner is behind the scenes. And they like it that way. They want to keep it that way because they operate best in secrecy. They're private companies. They don't have to make filings to the Securities and Exchange Commission. And so a lot of the business and a lot of their practices are hidden from view, and that is by design. One of the things that I think could improve um, the, our perception or educate people about how pervasive private equity has become is to force th- these firms to identify themselves as the owners. So it should be the Carlisle nursing home or the Blackstone um, you know, donut shop or whatever, just so you are aware of who you're um, dealing with and whose, you know, uh, pocket you're putting your money into. Now, the secrecy is one thing. Um, the political clout is, as you say, immense because they have so much money. I mean, their tax treatment is an outrage, and many people, many presidents have tried to change it, but have not been able to it do so. Explain what it is—the tax. Break. So, their fortunes are enhanced by the fact that they pay a fraction of what you and I pay on our incomes every year because it's called carried interest, it's not considered ordinary income. You know, the ordinary income tax rate is, what, up to 35%. What these people pay is around 21% on the income that they receive from their operations. And that's something that's been in the books for decades, but it really has created a skewed system where they make fortunes, billions of dollars. The government loses because they're not generating, you know, the tax revenues that they should on those billions. And it's it's just – it's nuts. Now, the last time someone tried to change this, um, Kirsten Cinema was yeah. a holdout. Because the, it was uh, good for the people the, of Arizona. The, uh, you know, right, <laughs> lawmaker from Arizona – She, I think, received a million and a half dollars from the private equity world to, you know, stand up and say no. And she scotched it. So getting them to pay their fair share of taxes would be a good thing. It would help the government. It would generate more income. And it would, you know, take away this really unfair aspect
0: of their business. You're right. Routinely lionized in the financial press for their deal-making and lauded for their charitable giving, these unbridled capitalists have mounted expensive lobbying campaigns to ensure continued enrichment from favorable tax laws. Hefty donations have won them positions of power on museum boards and think tanks. They've published books on leadership extolling, quote, the importance of humility and humanity at the top while eviscerating those at the bottom. Their companies arrange for them to avoid paying taxes on the billions and gains that their stock holdings generate, and of course, they rarely mention that the companies they own are among the largest beneficiaries of government investments in highways, railroads, and primary education, reaping massive perks from subsidies and tax policies that allow them to pay substantially lower rates on their earnings. These men are America's modern-age robber barons, but unlike many of their predecessors, in the 19th century, who amassed stupefying riches by extracting a young nation's natural resources, today's barons mine their wealth from the poor and middle class through complex financial dealings. These people not just control politicians— but they serve in government. Um, you have several examples of that. Um, so explain a little bit about how uh, they dominate the the political system.
1: Well, Jay Powell, our head of the Federal Reserve Board. He was a Carlisle executive. They're really everywhere. Um again, it's it's this pervasiveness. Um, but even even if they're not, on the job, say, in the government, they are behind the scenes, um, absolutely manipulating outcomes so that their businesses will benefit. Um, It's pretty, uh, they're, they're so powerful and so wealthy. And you know, Chris, better than anybody, how money is so central, unfortunately, to how our government works. You just have not had enough attention to this, uh, you know. This basically this this wealth grab um, by these people. The one thing we did have it was so the, the the activity, the practices were so outrageous that it actually got Congress to act, and that was on the surprise medical bills that you mentioned a bit ago. This was a creation, a the brainchild of a company called Envision, which is owned by KKR. And um, what Envision did was it went into emergency departments and started running many of those emergency departments in a hospital. It wouldn't own the hospital, but it ran the emergency departments. And Envision decided that what they could do is they could make the emergency department be a separate entity outside of the insurance coverage that the hospital's patients would normally have. So you're in your town, you go to the emergency department, you've broken your arm or whatever, you naturally assume that your insurance, which covers your normal hospital, you know, whatever, stay or treatment you naturally assume it's going to cover your emergency department bill. Well, Envision carved themselves out of that so that you would have to pay more. And this was something that was so you know, uh, crazy and impossible to think that it could happen that Congress actually did something about it and changed uh, and, and curbed the practice. They didn't eliminate them, but they curbed it. And Guess what? Envision went bankrupt after that because its business model required them I mean its business model was based on ripping people off.
0: I want to talk about you talk about several cases um including that heartbreaking case of the uh girl and woman who needs constant medical care and but uh People have to get the book. Um, but let, let's talk about in detail Noranda Aluminum.
1: So Noranda was a company that had a very profitable, very, um, very well-located aluminum smelter on the banks of the Mississippi River in the Bootheel region of Missouri. Not a wealthy part of the country, But this was a company, this was a smelter, aluminum production that had 2,500 jobs, well-paying jobs, um, good benefits, health care. And the company had been there for many, many years. And this was a well-established smelter doing a tremendous business on the Mississippi. They could deliver their aluminum all up and down the country. Great, great company. Apollo comes in and buys it. And they promise yeah, that Let me just add,
0: interrupt you. Yes. When a, a private equity firm like Apollo comes in to buy it, it it's not always the case that the company is looking to sell. Is that correct?
1: Well, the company has to be willing to sell.
0: But aren't they able to pressure companies to sell against their will or not?
1: Well, it depends. Now, usually, it's about money. So if it's a public company, that has publicly traded shares, and the shareholders are the ones who will then make the decision about whether the acquisition is made, generally what happens is that the company, that the shareholders say, great, I'm going to get a windfall, I'm going to get whatever, premium to whatever the stock price was trading at, when the acquirer comes in and says, I'll pay you $10 more a share. So generally speaking, the shareholders say, yay, let's do it, let's do the deal. When it's a private company, you're then talking about persuading whomever owns it that they are better off taking the money and running. But it's almost always a premium they're paying, and so that gets people's attention, and the owners or the shareholders say yes. So Apollo comes in. They buy the smelter. They promise that they're going to do right by the 2,500 families whose, you know, workers are there. And they immediately loaded up with debt. This was a company that did not have a lot of debt. And so it didn't have enormous interest costs. It didn't
0: have to pay those costs. I just want to ask, when they loaded up with debt, do they say, "Okay, these are our assets." And they they put the assets That's how they can get the debt that's because right. they're putting the assets up as collateral.
1: Correct. Right. So the asset is this smelter and this huge infrastructure. And they also had a very low cost of electricity.
0: It, just interrupting, again, it, is the debt used to pay for the acquisition? Yes. yes. The
1: debt is used to pay for the acquisition, but it again allows the private equity firm to take the money out, right? They're they're loading the debt onto the company itself, not onto the private equity firm. So the company is the one that now has to struggle with the debt costs, the increased interest expense that's associated with the debt. So Noranda, they, they load it up with debt. Almost immediately, Apollo gets its money out, all of its money out. Which it wasn't that much. Wasn't that much. Maybe even like six months or something like that, they were able to extract all their money by putting the debt on the company, okay? So now, Naranda is struggling under debt, under this debt load. Apollo then raises more debt. They ultimately make three times their money on the Naranda purchase. Meanwhile, the company starts to struggle, yeah, and, and it not And it goes
0: under because it has to service the debt now.
1: It starts to struggle because it has to service the debt. So then Apollo says, hmm, wow, this is a problem. Uh, We need to negotiate with the state of Missouri's utility commission to lower our electricity costs, or otherwise we're going to leave. We're going to sell the company, take it somewhere else or something. So they negotiate with the utility commission a lower rate even though it means that the other rate payers in Missouri have to pick up the slack, have to cover that difference, Apollo gets the lower rate. It then starts to fire people because it can't make ends meet. The company is struggling. Again, the debt is too high. I think there may have been a, a an economic you know, downturn, aluminum wasn't quite as, you know, in demand in any case, but it really was the debt that was causing the problems. The company ultimately goes bankrupt, but Apollo has made three times its money. So people are thrown out of work. They savaged three different pensions. The Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation had to come in and bail out three Noranda pensions because of the bankruptcy. They had ratepayers paying more across the state. There were school teachers because Noranda was the biggest taxpayer in this small town in Missouri. All of a sudden the tax base crumbled and the school teachers had to pay their own health care costs because what Noranda owed for the school payments for its taxes was not paid because they went bankrupt. So this was a perfect example of the circle of pain that these people create when they make all of the money for themselves, three times their investment, but they harmed Rate payers, they harmed school teachers, school children, they harmed workers, they harmed pensioners. That's what we're talking about.
0: You write to outsiders, the buyout firms appeared to be fierce rivals, competing assiduously to beat each other out for the companies they hoped to acquire. In reality, the firms were cozy collaborators, members of a club that bent richer profits for them and fewer. For everyday investors, explain how that works.
1: This was an amazing case that um, it was brought by shareholders or maybe debt holders. I think it was shareholders. But anyway, they turned up some amazing documents in the discovery where they had emails between these big, powerful firms that everyone thought were competing to buy companies, um, you know, KKR, etc. The emails were showed them to be very chummy. They would say, oh, well, we'll stand back on this deal. We won't do this deal. We'll let you take this deal. You give us the next one. And so it became clear when you have this kind of acquisition, if you have more bidders, if you have two bidders, three bidders, five bidders, The people who own the company that are selling it are going to get a better price because those bidders are going to bid up the price of the company. If you only have one bidder, they're not competing with anyone else, and they're not going to be raising the cost of the acquisition. So what happened was the shareholders ended up getting less because the other firms had decided not to compete and not to bid up the price. It was collusion that people had not really understood was happening on a regular basis. And it was kind of shocking. They ended up paying a lot of money to make the case, to settle the case. But it was a real eye-opener about how they are really working together to make sure that they don't have to pay too high a price and that there won't really be tough competition.
0: Isn't that illegal? (laughs) Sorry to be so naive. (laughs) DOJ didn't think so. Oh, really? Oh,
1: Did not bring a case.
0: Okay. Um, I want to talk about utilities. And I wrote a book called America, the Farewell Tour. But it opens in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which had declared bankruptcy. And they were just stripping city parking, uh, sewer, anything they could sell off, which of course made things worse. It it was a temporary fix, um, but uh, rates skyrocketed. And you write about Bayonne, uh, but talk about how they've now they're they're cannibalizing basic services that were once managed by cities, communities, Mm -hmm. and the government.
1: Well, of course, you remember the idea that took hold in the eighties about privatization. You know that the government doesn't know how to run anything. We really should privatize all of these, you know, organizations and services. The, you know, the private sector really knows what they're doing. They're going to do a better job. Um, we know that that's not the case, but in any case, these private equity firms do understand that there is money to be made buying into these kinds of utilities that are really necessities. We are not talking about frivolous items. You know, we're talking about water, okay? So Bayonne, New Jersey, like many, you know, cities in the Northeast, had a decrepit water system. Pipes were bursting that needed help. And along comes KKR, and they say, you know, we'll help you out. We'll buy this. We'll give the money to you that you need to refurbish. Um, Let's make that happen. They did the deal. You can well imagine that the people on the KKR side of the table were pretty shrewd operators and the people on the water utility side of the table were probably not as shrewd. Um, But what ended up happening was that for the people of Bayonne, New Jersey, which is a working class um, town, not a wealthy town, um, their water rates skyrocketed. And again, it was a situation where this very small group of financiers wind up winning, gaining enormous amounts, and everyone else winds up paying the freight
0: well when you write skyrocketed uh uh 2021 report by the association of environmental authorities a public utility nonprofit, said the average annual bill for privately owned water systems in the u.s was 60 percent higher than that of publicly owned systems and in privatized arrangements low-income households spent 1.55 percent more of their income on water so th- these rate hikes are staggering. I mean, they're very, very high and crippling.
1: Crippling, the- crippling, and it's not like you can say, "Okay, well, let's not drink any water today. Let's not use water to, you know, cook our food, wash our clothes, you know, do our dishes." Not, not a, not a uh, disp- not a, uh, you know, frivolous item.
0: So the so- let's talk about the social cost. Um, and I think we've talked uh, in a kind of microcosm, but what's it doing to the national economy how is it affecting us globally
1: well the first thing i think and the most important 30,000 foot view is it expands the wealth gap in this country it it really blows that out so uh, people who are in the lower you know echelon the the disparity between the rich and poor in this country. It is it's not healthy. It's unsustainable.
0: And is these it unsustainable because in essence they're just cannibalizing everything?
1: Well, it is unsustainable because you can't keep you can't keep extracting money from the middle class and the poor people to become billionaires. I mean, it's just that's just a recipe for disaster, okay. Capitalism is supposed to, in the in theory, benefit a wide array of people. It's supposed to provide prosperity for people to enhance their, um, you know, economic situation, have a good job, yeah, but, be but, able. But when to,
0: it, when it's regulated. When it's regulated, right. When it's not regulated, you have a term in the book: a hole capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Me, 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 right? You know,
1: I, me, mine capitalism, right? Where I don't care about everyone else. It's really all about what I want and what I can get for myself. So it's the wealth gap in this country that has really, really blown out. And I believe these entities are contributing mightily to that. Now, then when you get lower down, that's the 30,000 foot view. When you get lower down, you have these, you know, situations where people are actually personally affected by this, whether it's because The tax base in their town disappears because a company goes bankrupt. That means the taxpayers have to, you know, make the difference, make up the difference. Whether you're talking about a nursing home where people die more frequently, whether you're talking about pensions that are depleted because of this, meaning your retirement is going to be less prosperous than you had hoped it would be. These are the kinds of stories that you don't hear about. Chris, and that's why this is important to know. We endlessly, all the business press, you know, lionizing these people and talking about their deals and and how they're this billion and that billion, you never hear about the people on the other side of the transaction. And that's wrong because there are people on the other side of the transaction and they are, their stories and their voices are important.
0: Well, I think that's been the great failing, the failing of the press is that we're not telling those stories. And, you know, reading your book and seeing, you know, that line that you have in the book about how people know something is wrong, but they don't know what exactly is wrong. I really read that as, uh, I think, a huge factor in the rise of a figure like Trump. I don't yes. know how you feel. Yes,
1: I agree 100 percent. They're they they Don't understand finance, and you know, yes, the financiers make it complex for a reason. They hide behind the complexity, they hide behind the secrecy, Um, they hide behind the fact that you don't know that they own the companies. People, people. I'm, I'm not blaming people for not understanding it, not knowing what the problem is, because it is hidden from view, and it is. They do that on purpose but it is pernicious and it is impacting people and so it's causing job losses it's causing reduced pensions it's causing increased costs for taxpayers which all contribute to this sense of unease about my future am i going to have a you know enough money to retire am i going to have enough money to send my child to college there's an unease going on that these people are contributing
0: to. Well, you make a point in the book, like with the surprise bills from the emergency room. I think uh, the average, if I remember, was about six hundred dollars or something. Well, most since they don't know these bills are coming, these families living on the edge are completely wiped out. Right. Um, that this has catastrophic effects, uh, and and these you know essentially predatory practices. Are bleeding, especially the the working poor and the lower working class, uh, which I think you know you make very clear in the book, and that has political consequences when it's not addressed, and it's largely not addressed because, under our system of legalized bribery, in essence, the political class. These people own the political class. Not only own the political class, but especially, I think during the Trump administration, a lot of these private equity people were in the administration. Oh. Steve Schwarzman
1: was at Trump's right hand in many photographs. You know, he was his, you know, business advisor.
0: You know, financial. Well, one um, one, crook, one crook advising another. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. Thanks. That was Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Gretchen Morganson, author of. These Are the Plunderers, How Private Equity Runs and Wrecks America. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrishedges.substack.com.